All right, good morning. Good morning. Congratulations, graduates. Katie, Eddie, you already graduated from college? Seemed like you just started high school like a couple of years ago. Did you fast track it? Did you do it in two years? Took you four years? Wow. That was a fast four years, wasn't it? Sean and Jenny. And Lily, uh, are you starting college? That's good. Man, time flies, doesn't it? Time flies. It's so wonderful to see young people grow up in the church and go pursue their, their dreams and accomplish things, even as adults go back and get it and, and do it. So congratulations. I heard recently about a young father who had, was having tea with his seven-year-old daughter and Mary Beth. They were drinking out of some Disney character cups, and he asked Mary Beth which one she got, and she said, Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast. She studied her cup for a little while, and then she said, and yeah, Dad, they lived happily ever after. After a few disagreements and arguments now and then, Dad laughed and said, where'd you get that idea? She said, Mommy told me that's the way it really is. Living happily ever after means disagreements and arguments. Our topic today is not one that probably a graduate wants to think about or talk about, but it's one that we're all familiar with. Even before we took our first step into kindergarten, we dealt with this topic. We've all dealt with it. It's the topic of conflict. We're in a series called Family Life, and we've established the fact that in order to have a blessed, fruitful family, you need a uh, foundation of a biblical, traditional marriage. If you're going to have a family, I'm talking about multiple people, then the foundation of a family is a traditional, biblical marriage. That's what we've established. And we also said that the foundation for that, of course, is the Bible. The foundation is the Bible. So let's understand what's happening here is family life, a family life that honors God and that I think will be blessed by God is one that is built on a foundation of God's word. You agree with me? It's got to be. <clears throat> Now, this is a, uh, this is a uh, not so common or not a believed concept these days, but it's true. I know we're in a marketplace of ideas that wants to tear down everything that's traditional, everything that's biblical, but I want to tell you this is the truth. You want to bless family? Then you have to have a foundation of a biblical Traditional marriage. You want a biblical traditional marriage to be blessed, and it has to be based on the Word of God. And I know, I know a lot of younger generation people aren't accepting this or not buying this or believing that you can base your family on anything else. For instance, replace the Bible with my ideas. Just put your own ideas in there, and that's what we'll base our family on. But it doesn't work. It's been tested time and time again that the best way to fly, if you remember the airplane illustration, the best way to succeed is to do it God's way. The family is God's idea. 
It's his idea. Even before the church came into existence, God designed the family. And so today we're going to talk about, last week was parenting on Mother's Day. Gus preached here. I was in the great state of Mississippi wearing an army uniform. And uh, uh, Gus preached on parenting and then before that marriage. And today we're going to talk about conflict. We're going to talk about conflict because we have to deal with this. Everybody deals with conflict. Some people try to avoid it. Some pipe. Some people run from it. Some people embrace it and they love it. Uh, and you know, all of those are you know need to be tempered with the Word of God, and we need to let Him guide us. So today we're going to talk about conflict. Conflict can do a lot of things in your life. It can give you stress and anxiety, confusion, uncertainty. It can it, it can make you uh, hurt pe- feelings. It can hurt your feelings. It can cause division. It can cause divorce, deep wounds from conflict and how it's dealt with. Can linger for years in a in a family. <clears throat> and you've probably seen this happen where families. They aren't talking to each other because something that happened and it wasn't dealt with properly. And so now the the lingering generational effects of of the poor management of conflict uh, are the case for many families. But the Bible says that we need to live in peace. We need to strive to live in peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So uh, we're going to talk today about conflict the root causes of conflict, and we could talk about a dozen, but we're going to talk about three, and then how to, how to deal with that in a biblical way. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did all that teaching and all that sharing of those, uh, you know, those ideas that fulfilled the Old Testament, and then he told this story about two men who each built a house. One was foolish and one was wise. The foolish man built his house, remember, what was it on? Sand, and the wise man built his house on the rock. And the storm, the same storm came and hit both houses. And the house that was built on sand, a sand foundation, crumbled. But the house that was built on stone stood firm. What I'm talking about today and in this series is for you to build your family, for you to build your house on a firm foundation on the foundation of stone. So let's look at the root causes of of conflict in your life. And to do that, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been in Ephesians for this whole series. We were in chapter 5 in the first message, then last week, chapter 6. We're going to stick with Ephesians for this sermon and go to chapter 4. And I want to get to uh, starting with verse 25, but I feel like I need to read verses 17 to 24 to set up Verse 25, all right? Because this is important when you talk about conflict in your family. So starting with verse 17, Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says this. Now I say this, or this I say, testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So basically, here's what I need to say about this to set up what I'm about to share with you about dealing with conflict in your family. What Paul is saying here in this passage is, if you're a Christian, act like it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're a believer, act like it. If you're a follower of Christ, act like it. In every aspect of your life, including in your marriage, including your family, including how you do your parenting, including how you relate to your parents, including how you relate to your siblings and your friends and everybody, whatever you do, if you say you're a Christian, then act like it, because that's what Christians do. What would the world look like if 65 million people acted like they claimed they were? That's how many Christians... And that might just be in this country. I'll have to check that number again. don't have it in my notes. But what if we acted like we were believers and Christians? It would, it would take care of a lot of the problems we have in our culture, wouldn't it? It really would. So our marriage should look different. Our parenting should look different than the world's. The way we handle conflict should look different than the world's. So here's the main text for today that we'll get to in a little bit in our message, starting with verse 25. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, that's the main passage for today, dealing with conflict, and we'll get to that in just a second. Before we get to that, I want to just talk real quickly, as quick as I can, about the root causes of conflict in your life. If you are, if you are divorced, if you are in a strained relationship, if you're having problems right now, uh, then it's likely that one of these root causes is the cause, maybe all of them together, or, you know, they're the root causes of why you're going through what you're going through. You know, one lady came uh, to a preacher and she said, oh, preacher, preacher, uh, we got a problem. He said, what's the problem? He said, I, I've, got, I've got trouble in my marriage. And he told her, he said, that's not, that's not a problem. That's expected. We're all going to have trouble. We're all going to have problems in our marriage. We're all going to have conflict. Well, what's the cause of that conflict? Three things. First of all, selfish attitudes. I mean, you knew this was coming, didn't you? It's uh, human beings are selfish. We, we just learn to self-preserve, self-protect, and we have this attitude that, you know, I want my way. I want my way. And this starts at a very early age. You know, when you have a baby, a new baby comes into the family, you know, you, you treat that baby, you're head over heels in love with that baby. I mean, you just, you just love it. And if the baby has any kind of adversity or conflict, it just seems like the feelings are multiplied. But you love all your children so much. And when they're really, really little, they're so dependent on you, and that kind of feels good. Uh, and, you know, most of the time it feels good because, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm the sole provider here. Parents are saying that. And we, we're taking care of this little one. And, uh, you know, what happens is uh, while you're, all your attention is on that little one, that little one, uh, somehow, some way, they learn that, hey, every, every time I cry, mommy comes in here. Every time I uh, do this, I get a response. And so even at the age of one and two, our children can be very demanding and very selfish, can't they? I mean, again, it's, it's not like it's their fault. It's kind of like human nature. There's a lot of natural human natures that we as Christians have to let the Holy Spirit transform and uh, change us and learn a new nature, our new nature in Christ. But so the selfishness, we're, we're, you know, we, we learn it at a very early age and we use it to our advantage. And if not checked, if not checked, then that uh, two-year-old becomes a, a five-year-old. And the, uh, the crying turns into screaming and yelling. I was uh, in Walmart uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was uh, just kind of passing through from the grocery side to the other side. And I was walking through some, one of the clothing uh, departments, and I heard this kid screaming. I heard this kid screaming, but I couldn't see him because he was uh, shorter than the clothing that was in front of him. He was just screaming. And the mom, I heard the mom talking to him, but the mom was walking like uh, six or seven steps in front of him. And then she would stop and turn around and yell at him. And the problem was this, this little boy, I don't know, maybe he was, uh, he seemed like he was six or seven. I, he might have he had some special needs. I don't, I don't know, but he didn't want to put his shirt on. He didn't want to wear his shirt. And before I really saw him, I told the mother, I said, hang in there. I said, you're, you're the mom here. I don't know why I told her that. And she didn't take it wrong, but I said, hang in there. You're, you're doing a good job because she wasn't giving in to him. Anybody got a kid that acts up in Walmart, the grocery store, or anywhere? Yeah. You know, they learn that, hey, I want my way. I want my way, and if I can't have my way, I want you out of my way. That's kind of the way it is. James says this is true of adults, too. He's talking to the uh, believers there. The first century he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is James 4, 1 and 2. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So James says, the reason we have conflict is because we're selfish. You know, we want our way. I want my way. If I can't have my way, I'm going to do something about it which sometimes means something unhealthy for the relationship and for the marriage. Parents, one of the best things you can do in your child's life is to learn how to wean them off of the attention they get from you. That's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And, uh, we, you know, that, that's, your, that's part of your job, to, to produce young uh, adults who are not selfish, Man, it's a tough job, isn't it? Because I would say most young adults today are really selfish. A lot of adults are. We have to learn not to be selfish. And this pains me to say this. But grandparents, sometimes you need to get out of the way. Now, I'm trying to work with my wife about this. She's, she's getting better. And we're working on it. 
being good grandparents. Seriously, uh, our daughter has to hide the Oreos from us so that their kids don't get too many of them. We have this great image in John 15 that I think works well for families. Christ is the vine, the marriage is the branch, and kids are like leaves on the branch. And one, though, one day those leaves will blow off and go dancing in the wind and find their own way in the world. Selfishness is something that we learn. We learn it, that we have to unlearn as we let the Spirit of Christ mold us. You got me? Also, there are unrealistic expectations. There was a survey in USA Today several years ago that with the caption, is there a Mr. and Mrs. Wright? 66% of the people surveyed believed, yes, there's someone out there for me. There's, there's a perfect person out there for me. Interestingly, according to the survey, the older you got, the less you believe that. 18 to 24-year-olds, 85% of them believe that there's that Mr. or Mrs. Wright out there waiting for me. But as you get older, those people over the age of 75, only about 50% of them believed it. What happened there? Well, they understand that, hey, you know, I, I tried Mrs. Wright, and, uh, you know, she, was Ms., she wasn't Mrs. Wright. I tried Mr. Wright, and, you know, he let me down. And that's the way it is, isn't it? We don't, we don't marry the perfect person. There's nobody out there who will complete you. Now, there's you know, like old Rocky. Remember Rocky said he and Adrian, they filled gaps. They filled gaps. That's what they, why they got along. That'll happen, and that's a beautiful thing when it happens. But still, there's going to be some letdowns. Somebody told me recently, they said, my, my uh, goal is to go in with the lowest possible expectations in everything I do. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, then you're, gonna, you're bound to please everybody then. If they expect you to not do very well, you, 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 do, you do better. And I'm not saying that you should go in expecting to do the worst or expecting the worst. But what I am saying is that don't, don't put Mr. Right or don't put your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse up on a pedestal because you know what's going to happen? They're going to let you down. Uh, you know, someone said the difference in a boyfriend and a husband is about 40 pounds. It's about 40 pounds. So uh, that may or may not be true in your case, but, uh, you know, they're, they're going to get older. They're going to get older, and they're going to get uh, more, more uh, um, needy in a lot of cases. Unrealistic expectations can cause a lot of issues. If you, if you grow up in this perfect fairy tale Cinderella world and think, uh, you know, Mr. Prince Charming is going to dash in and sweep you off your feet and be everything to you, you, you got some, uh, you know, you got some uh, issues you're going to have to deal with later in your life. Now, um, seriously, nobody has the perfect spouse. Uh, you know, my wife got lucky, but most of, most people can't, Get that, and you've got you to be patient. Paul told the Colossians in 3.11 that only Christ is all and in all. Third, the third reason for, um, unshared, uh, for conflict is unshared goals. And what I mean by this is faith goals. Faith goals. Romans 8.29 says that our, our work ought to be to conform to the image of his Son, we want to become more like Jesus in how we handle everything, even in our family and in our marriage. 
So when you get married, that's got to be your goal. That's got to be your goal for one another. That's got to be your goal for your children. That's got to be the goal for your family, that it looks more like Christ, that it responds more like he would. And when this is not the goal, for instance, if you are unequally yoked, a Christian married to a non-Christian, it's going to be hard for you to have those goals together. Now, I've seen cases where, uh, you know, most often it's, a, it's the, the bride who is a Christian who's marrying a non-Christian groom. And, she, you know, she has these ideas that, oh, he's going to change once I marry him. And that it doesn't always happen. In fact, it, it probably doesn't happen very often. But sometimes it does. I've seen it happen right here in this church. But I want to tell you something. It's hard work on that believing spouse. It's hard work on that Christian spouse to stay focused and to, and to model in front of her spouse or his spouse or their children what it looks like to follow Christ and still not share the values of how we're going to spend our money, what we're going to do with our Sunday mornings, how we're going to get involved in the church, how we're going to handle parenting, how we're going to handle uh, activities that our kids could be involved in. The, all these are, and a lot more are issues. And if you're not together on these issues, if you don't have the common goal that, hey, what's our goal here? What are we trying to produce? Are we trying to produce a professional baseball player? Or are we trying to produce a young adult who is conforming to the image of our Savior? I know it sounds like, well, wait a minute, one pays a lot of money, one doesn't. But statistically, your kid's not going to play professional sports. But yet you're spending a lot of time on your weekends taking them out of church and taking them away from youth group and taking them away from, uh, you know, what things they could be doing solid in order to plant those goals in them. And, and for most of them, it's not going to happen. If it does happen, wouldn't it be awesome if their first priority was to give God the glory and honor and their second priority was to be a good ball player? Amen. That'd be great, wouldn't it? It'd be awesome to see. How do you do that? It's not easy. But remember, your first priority, that's your first priority. You know, one woman uh, was talking to her friend, and uh, she hung up the phone her husband knew that she wasn't happy and he was in the living room and she stood there at the door and he looked at her and said, what's wrong? He said, she said, she's over there and they're in their house drinking a pot of coffee, sitting at the dining room table just talking. Why can't we do that? The husband said, well, put on a pot of coffee, dear. She went and put on a pot of coffee and they sat there in silence. A few minutes later, he said, well, call them up and see what they were talking about. You know, part of the problem that we don't have shared goals, spiritual goals, is because we don't talk about them. We're not talking about them. We may talk about how many kids we want to have. We may talk about where we want to live and what we wanna, uh, how we want to spend our free time. But are we talking about, you know, what do we want to do with our, with our family? How do we want to grow our kids? How, do we want to teach them how to pray? Let's teach them how to pray. Do we want to read them to the Bible? What's our goal there? Should they learn a Bible story every week? So shared goals are, it's so much easier to deal with conflict because the goal is here. We've agreed on the goal, and now it's like, you know, this doesn't contribute to the goal. So there's no conflict. We just, we got to cut it out, or we, we do it only if we were able to do it. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Well, these are the root causes of conflict in your family, in your marriage, among your kids, with your kids. 
Remember, selfish attitudes, unrealistic expectations, and unshared spiritual goals. How do we deal with conflict? We know it's coming. Real quickly, I, wanna, I just want to help you out here. First, we have to prioritize our battles. This is something that most people know. As they get older, they realize that we, we sometimes have to bite our tongue. Someone said the best practice is to keep your eyes wide open before you get married and half-closed after. You with me? There's some things you just need to let it go. Let it go. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The reason we want to stay in there and fight is because we want our way. We want our way. We shouldn't always get our way. There are a lot of things that you're going to fight about. You should just let go. You know, there's a groove in your tongue right there. Mm-mm, got to bite that tongue again. This takes a little bit of age and maturity. And, um, uh, you know, it takes, it, it takes some skill and some experience in parenting and in being married. Sometimes you just can't say what you want to say. Has anybody ever gotten in trouble for saying what they wanted to say? Yeah. It didn't have to be said. Didn't have to be said. So, husband, that's your goal is to is to keep your mouth shut. You know, my brother's daughter is getting married, and I gave him the advice that Bill Weimer from Artes Valley Campus gave me when my daughters got married. Uh, he said, "Dave, you gotta uh, shut your mouth and open your wallet, and all things will be good as your daughter gets married." Can I get an amen on that? You know, when Cortez landed in the New World, he burned his ships. He burned his ships so his men wouldn't think, oh, we can go back if it gets too tough. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, when you have conflict in your marriage, you can't keep divorce in the front pocket. Can't keep it, put it on the table just because things aren't going good. In fact, you can't even keep it in the back pocket. You can't pull it out as a, as a oh, well, I got this card. Christians should take divorce and throw it out of the room. Get it off the table. Get it out of the, out of the vocabulary because we're called to work on it. We're called to stay together. We're called to deal with conflict. That's our, that's our priority. We're called to burn the ships and say, we're going to work through this. We're going to be better on the other side. Secondly, though, if you decide you do want to fight, you can't bite your tongue, you can't let it go, it's too important, then Paul tells us how to deal with this. So when you fight, you have to fight fair. You have to fight fair. This comes right from our text. First of all, always tell the truth. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. This word for falsehood is the word pseudos. You hear pseudonym, uh, pseudopigrapha. That's a word that Bible scholars use to talk about the writings that uh, some, the, you know, people, the Roman Catholics have in their Bible that they were falsely written. Uh, some of them, you know, they obviously weren't written by the people they said they were. And there are others. So pseudo is the word falsehood. You want a uh, non-pseudo relationship. You want a true relationship. Scott Peck talks about in his writings, he talks about the tunnel of chaos. The tunnel of chaos is that place where you got to go to sometimes in your, in your family, maybe a marriage, maybe with your children, maybe siblings have to get there. The tunnel of chaos, and when you get in there, you got to speak the truth in love. But the truth's going to hurt. 
and the, the, the truth, the truth uh, might, it might be hard for you to say it. it. It might be hard for you to hear it. You may come out wounded. You may come out with hurt feelings, but you heard the truth and you understood the truth. And it's, it was done in love. And a lot of couples never get past the falsehood because they won't deal with the falsehood in a tunnel of chaos where we got, we got to work this out. We got to get together. We got to talk about this. And it's necessary to have meaningful conversation to fight fair and to effectively deal uh, with conflict. So always tell the truth. No good marriage or relationship was ever built on a lie. Secondly, control your temper. He says, be angry. It's okay to be angry. Jesus got angry, but do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. You know, if you don't deal with your anger, if you're not talking to each other, the devil's going to be talking to each of you. So control your temper. You know, like a tornado ripping through a town, it might feel good for you to get that out, but what you leave in the wake is a lot of damaged lives and damaged relationships, damaged hearts, and probably a damaged home. Thirdly, be a contributor, not a consumer. Paul mentions thieves here. He says you should work with your hands so you have something to give. I know there's a greater uh, explanation for that and a, and a meaning for that, but let's think about the family. Let's think about a marriage. If you're just in it for what's in it for you, it's, it's not going to last very long. People who are just takers and they're not givers. You know, you got to take and give, take and give. That's the way families work. Nobody can get their way all the time. And, and, and if you're a thief in your family, you're stealing from your marriage, you're stealing from your kids, you're stealing from your family, from the harmony and peace in your family, you need to be a giver, a contributor, not just a consumer. And then fourthly, watch your language. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. You know, there are a lot of people who use four-letter words a lot. I've heard this a lot. I hear it a lot when I'm in an army uniform. Not so much now, but I used to. And it's, it's, uh, it's just, it, you know, it's, there's no sense for it. If, you, if you're not mature enough and smart enough to use something more than a four-letter word, just bite your tongue. Just bite your tongue. And let me tell you where I've heard this in the last several years that is really disappointing and that reflects the erosion of morality in our culture. I've been over the years to some high school football games or basketball games or in uh, the vicinity of high school students that I didn't know. And I want to tell you, I'm, I'm absolutely appalled at the language in high schools today. I'm appalled at it. I mean, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have heard young men talking to young women or just in general like they talk today. And I'm not saying every high school kid's like this by all means. Uh, I'm saying that this is the culture in a lot of high schools. And if you don't believe me, ask your high schooler. Say, hey, is there any bad language at your school? And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I've had teachers tell me they hear it in their classrooms. And how many of you grew up and that would be the case? Wouldn't have happened, would it? This is the erosion of morality and respect in our culture. And it's getting younger and younger. It's middle school kids now, maybe even elementary age kids. We need to watch our language, don't we? Mom, dad, if you're dealing with this kind of language problem, then you need to grow up. You need to grow up. Your kids can't grow up in a healthy environment if this, is corrupt, this corrupting coarse language comes out of your mouth. 
And lastly, uh, if you're going to fight, fight fair, but you got to be nice. You got to be nice. Now, this is counterintuitive to think, I got to be nice in a fight. Yeah, be nice. You know, no hair pulling, no scratching, that kind of thing. Just fight fair. Fight fair. Uh, that's what he says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, remember, the, the goal of conflict resolution is not for you to win an argument. Guys, if you have to win every argument, get used to the couch, right? The goal of conflict resolution is not even for you to resolve the conflict. You don't even have to resolve the conflict. There's a lot of conflict that you're going to live with, deal with. You disagree about, you know, your favorite restaurant or it could be that trivial, or it could be something as, uh, you know, you disagree about your life uh, pursuit. Sometimes we have to learn to live with conflict in our life. It can be manageable. I'm not saying all conflict, but there's, there's times when the goal of conflict resolution doesn't mean that we got to get this worked out. We got to do it today before we go to bed. That's what the Bible says. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It says don't, don't go to bed angry. Uh, but conflict can go on for years, but it can be managed and dealt with and lived with. And we can just accept this is the way they are. You know, she can be wrong if she wants to be wrong, and I'll let her, and we'll just live happily. Amen. That was a joke. <laughs> Let me tell you what the goal of conflict resolution is, or conflict management. Conflict resolution is relationship restoration. That's the goal of conflict resolution. It's to restore the relationship. Restore the relationship. The last thing I want to tell you today, how to manage and deal with conflict in your life, before you get it into it, resolve to repent or forgive. Go into it thinking, okay, we're going we're gonna to fight this out. We're going to talk about this, but I'm going to be the first one to say I'm sorry. In fact, one older man was asked, what's the secret to your long marriage? He said, if you, if you, if you argue and you think you have to have the last word in the argument, make sure it's an apology. Resolve before you go into it. We're not going to deal with any conflict except at the end of it we say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I love you. Or maybe you have to be the one to forgive and say, it's okay. We can do better. You know, that's the way God treats us. That's the way God deals with us. We are at conflict with him. We're all sinners. But he says, hey, I'm going to take you back. I'll take you back again. I'll take you back again. You said you were sorry. You repented. You came clean. I'll take you back and we'll get going. Again, I want your family, I want my family to be a model family so people can look to and say, that's, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we want to see. My family doesn't always measure up to that by any means. Probably yours doesn't either. But I, but I hope there's something about my family that you can say, you know, that he's, he's working on it. He's working on it. And I'm proud. I'm proud of my daughters. I'm proud of uh, Jameson. And uh, I, I'm proud to present my family to you. And I hope you are too proud of your family. If you're not, let's work on it and get to where we can say, hey, this is the family God is working on. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you, God, for our families. We need strong families in the church, in our communities, in the world. 
We need families that trust you, that are built on a, on a, a biblical marriage and uh, on a foundation of your word. We need families that know how to handle conflict, that we don't let it divide us, but we let it make us stronger together. And we come together and work through and keep pushing on to the finish line. That's my prayer for all of our families today. My family and everyone here, God, would you bless us to that end? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you.